Welcome to Digital Health Talks. Each week, we meet with the healthcare leaders making a measurable difference in equity, access, and quality. Hear about what tech is worth investing in and what isn't as we focus on the innovations that deliver. Join me, Megan Antonelli, and my friend, Shahid Shah, for our weekly No BS Deep Dives into what's really making an impact in healthcare. I want to introduce our first speaker. I've followed this woman on social media for a long time. I've never met Gail Zotz, but I'm really excited to. She's the founder and CEO of Wise Care Health, and Gail really guides organizations through the value-based care continuum with with a combination of her professional expertise and her personal background in storytelling and lived experience. And so she's going to talk to us today about patient-centered care. So it's my pleasure to introduce Gail. Thank you so much. Really, seriously. Good morning, everyone. First speaker, wake up. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, that's too much energy. <laughs> I love opening because people are like still kind of, you know, like in the thing. They haven't really had the coffee yet. And then they're like, gas us. <laughs> it's like, wake up. <laughs> so, we, so we have a little time together. How many of you are CIOs? So how many are tech people representing tech? representing hospitals or doctors. Okay, just trying to get a sense of, because when we think about like health tech, we have sort of a different lens, right? Are we thinking about getting it to market? Are we thinking about how we use it? Are we thinking about something called interoperability? I can't even say it with a straight face, right? Interoperability in healthcare, like that vision. And we're looking at it from different lenses also when we're talking about patient experience versus the business of healthcare. And that's what I really want to talk about today. Thank you so much for, they gave me a lot of leeway. They're like, so what do you want to talk about? I said, ah, I want to talk about the business of healthcare and patient experience. (laughs) Because, right, they have almost nothing to do with each other. I'm in both because I've had the lived experience, which I'm going to share with you, and I'm a healthcare executive. So I'm in value-based care. What am I in the business of? Let's be frank. I'm in the business of buying and selling beneficiaries, right? Like nobody wants to hear that. Like, oh, she really started tough. That is so far from the patient experience, right? And when we think about what we can do with technology for healthcare, for whom? Because unfortunately, when we think about doing something for the business side, right, we're talking revenue cycle management or attribution, which nobody's actually solved to, somebody needs to or quality reporting, or all of this, like, you know, oh, we've got this great AI, or like one of my favorites with tech, and I've worked with a lot of tech companies, like remote patient monitoring, or they'll come and they'll say, oh, we have this amazing technology that will reduce preventable admissions for heart attack in five years. And it's on all the slides, and it's like amazing because it's been, you know, it's gone through review, Nobody cares, right? Because who is sitting in a position to care about a beneficiary in five years, right? Nobody knows if they're going to even be responsible for that person. And we're talking beneficiaries, not really people, right? So when you're going and you say, oh, I'm going to get this into a health system because I'm going to prevent readmissions in five years, that CFO doesn't even know if they're going to care about that beneficiary in five years, right? So there's a total disconnect when we talk about technology and the business. Even worse, 
the disconnect between the technology and the patient experience. And the fact that patient experience has very little to do with the business of healthcare. But this is the opportunity. What you guys are doing, the opportunity is to bridge between the patient experience and the business and make them connect. Because right now, nothing is. The financials certainly aren't, and that's what I'm in the business of doing. So I, I want to talk to you a bit about my own experience as a patient so that you can kind of see my bridge between the business and patient. This is really loud, isn't it? I was in healthcare my whole life, startups, and I was getting sicker and they didn't know what was wrong. And all of a sudden I started like falling more and I needed a wheelchair and I was young, like late thirties and they don't know why. And then I'm getting sicker and sicker now in my early forties. And I go to the hospital on Labor Day weekend because I was, I was just like really sick, but I'm thinking, <laughs> this is a crazy healthcare person, that it's Labor Day weekend, so they're not going to want to keep me because <coughs> <So> <coughs> they'll give me whatever they need to give me and they'll send me home. So I get into the hospital by myself. FYI, solo mom of four kids, it kind of like plays into the story. And I'm there in the bed. I'm like, yeah, so we're not comfortable sending you home to my four kids that I'm solo mom of. We're not comfortable because you really don't have like any of your ADLs anymore. So we're going to send you here. And the, in, the hospital gives me a piece of paper. And I'm looking at the paper. I'm like, is this hospice? <laughs> no, no, not really. I'm like, where is this? Is this like, like, I don't see any physical therapy. I don't see any rehab. I don't see, like, well, <laughs> yeah, kind of is. Kind of is, meaning it's a difference. Hospice is like really loving and supportive and you make decisions and you do planned together. There's a whole other piece called warehousing people, right? And that's what we do. That is what we do, right? When we don't have an answer, they didn't know what was wrong with me. So they were just gonna send me to say goodbye. They brought in security and they like pushing wheelchair. They're like, ma'am, please get into the wheelchair. I'm like, make me. <laughs> Cause I know they can't touch me, right? So they bring a psychiatrist for like an hour. And he's like, oh, let's talk about making videos for your kids and writing letters. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. But I know that there's like a bed utilization person there who's gonna want me out. So I do a lay-in, cause I can't stand. I do a lay-in in the hospital for a week. And then the magic bed utilization person says, what is she doing here? Get her out. My big ticket was the basement of a one-star sniff. Anybody ever been in a one-star skilled nursing facility? There was like mold coming down from the ceiling. And it wasn't because I couldn't advocate, right? I'm in healthcare. I'm calling the omnibus. I'm like, couldn't do it. So I'm there for a few weeks. And I like, as I was getting sick, I said to the doctor, my primary care, I said, what about a mammogram? He's like, oh no, you're too young. Mammogram isn't the thing. What does that translate to? At the time, if you were under 45, you didn't qualify for a mammogram, a AKA for it to be paid for. So the doctor convinced himself that if it wasn't paid for, then therefore I didn't need it. So I'm in the nursing home by myself. My kids are put into care, which is a whole other story because we have no place in our health system for a sick single mom. What do we do about children? And there's blame in the system, right? You either have to be abusing or neglect. So FYI, it's neglect to get sick when you're a single parent. That is classified as neglect. 
So I do a self-exam. I'm like, huh. Go in to the same primary care doctor for the last time. He's like, yeah, so let's send you for that mammogram. Sends me the same day for the mammogram. They do two biopsies. They send me back to the nursing home. Get a call from scheduling. From scheduling from whatever country scheduling was sitting in. Says, okay, we got you in with the next available oncologist. I said, oncologist? You mean I have cancer? It's like, nobody told you? She said, you have aggressively metastasized ductal carcinoma. I'm like, huh. So I go in, I meet with the palliative team, and I meet with the, and I meet with the um, oncology team, and I said, here's the thing, I'm in healthcare. I'm not going to Google it. I'm not going to ask for a second opinion. I'm not going to call my colleagues, but you need to know that I'm in this to survive. I had 10 months of weekly chemotherapy. The last one was mustard gas that went into my veins, and I'm laying on the floor for three hours screaming because it's mustard gas. <laughs> I go through my system. I had 10 hours of that, 10 weeks of that, I mean, 10 months, 10 years, 10 millennium. I, and, and then they had shrunk enough where they were operable. But along the way, I had this really interesting patient experience because I was, I ended up blind in an electric wheelchair on liquid only nutrition for two years, living in the basement of the nursing home for a year, 10 months of chemotherapy. I had over 50 surgeries. And Along the way, at the hospital, they gave me this little device that I clipped on when I walked into the clinic every day, constantly. And it was just, it was like a little GPS. And what it would do is I wouldn't have to check in, right? So I would go and get my labs done, and then I would go and get my chemo, and then I would go and see the doctor. Usually you have to go and you have to check in each time. And if they're running late, they can't find you. If they're going early, they can't fit you in. This seems like nothing, right? You would see this as a technology and be like, oh, that's so cute. It's like a Lego, right? It's not like real technology. And yet it massively improved my experience because it meant that I didn't have to wait in lines and that I could like go through faster. And I think that a lot of times we forget about the simpler things because we're kind of like really excited. You know, it was not AI driven. It was not, but it made my life dramatically better. So I got out after 10 months. It was literally like getting out of jail. I mean, they like, well, I'll tell you a little fun jail story about there. So I'm in healthcare. So I did a whole bunch of work on sensory. I know Bunny knows about the sensory stuff, but you, if you integrate sensory into your environment, it has really good outcomes with smell and, right? So in the nursing home, in this basement, I got like, you know, like some nice smelly stuff and like a blow up chair that like people could sit in so that maybe I could have social. Like I was trying to do the things that we talk about, right? My own self-care with my own health literacy. And I did that and they come in, two people come in and they're like, you have contraband in your room. I'm like, really? Where? They're like, this is a fire hazard. They pick me up because I couldn't move. Like, I, I mean, I was literally in adult diapers, like to be perfectly honest. Like I was like, so they pick me up and they put me onto a wheelchair. They turn over my bed. They strip my sheets. They pop my sensory chair. I didn't do anything wrong. I was trying to do self-care. I was trying to use my health literacy to empower my journey all of the things we talk about, right? But the real experience was basically I was in jail. 
they kept a notebook, right? And there was not, I know everybody wants my experience to be different, right? Because we all, but this is pretty, this is not atypical. They keep binders in the, in the sniff on each patient. You think it's for the medications and that sort of thing. Well, so FYI, I was like a rebel patient. <laughs> I was not compliant. I was not nice. I was, and I was angry, right? I was, I was angry. I was really angry and I was in a lot of pain. And so in the middle of the night, I wheeled over to like where all the notebooks were while the, ner- while the night nurse was not there and I pulled down my notebook. I got in a lot of trouble for this. And the entire notebook was about my behaviors. Oh, patient, patient was hostile today saying that she hadn't received her medication, which I had not right? They used medication as a reward and punishment. So there was a woman there in the nursing home and she had diabetes. So on her leg, it need, she had the wound, right? And it needed to be treated two, three times a day. It was not treated. So they amputated it. There was a man there who was walking. They had spilled stuff all over the floor. He fell, he died, and he was gone the next day. I mean, these experiences are so far from what we want them to be, but tech alone will not solve that, you know? What will is when we connect people to what they can do. You know, we empower them. And what what does tech empowerment look like? It looks like me having what I choose to want to have in the way that I want to have it. It is the ultimate and patient choice. I didn't want to research my diagnosis. I didn't, and I told them. I said, I just don't even care. I didn't even know it was mustard gas until I was better. I was too overwhelmed, not because I wasn't smart enough or educated enough, but I did want to ride when I was in an electric wheelchair to be able to get to my treatment, right? Because I couldn't get into a car. I don't know, like you want patient experience, try three hours once in your life going around to an electric wheelchair. And all this stuff about curb cuts, you're gonna say like, oh, people are just being ridiculous. Not at all, right? I ended up, I was in Minnesota when all this happened and I ended up sprawled out in the middle of a snowbank because it wasn't properly shoveled and it wasn't, and people had to like stop a car and pick me up. There was no dignity in that, but I couldn't get a ride, right? I would wait there for an hour in the, like the freezing cold. So what ended up happening? I got sepsis, I got MRSA, I got C. diff. I had a whole buffet of preventable things that led to preventable admissions. The whole time I was going through this, I was alone. And there's two chairs in every office, right? In every doctor's office. There's one for the patient and one for the caregiver. And the whole time I'm there looking at that chair for the caregiver that was empty. And that's what it became for me, the empty chair. And I would look at it and they'd be like, okay, Gail, so we're gonna do an 11 hour surgery tomorrow. And, the whole, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm drugged and I'm in pain and I'm like struggling to like, cause there's like this black wall between me and you. And I'm in communications, like usually that's not, but everything was a struggle for me. Cause I'm going through this like black wall of like kind of pain and sickness. 
and blindness, which, <laughs> and I'm looking at that chair and I said, it doesn't have to be this hard. Like it doesn't have to be this hard. And that is what you all can do with technology solutions. Make it easier. Don't fix it. You can't, people look to healthcare to fix the human condition. You cannot and stop promising that you can fix the fact that if you're homeless or you don't have food, we can serve people with that. We should be, we must be, we must be acting like the rest of the developed countries in the world and serving the rest, the 80% that happens outside of clinic. We must do that. But you can't fix the fact that I was alone. Right? You can't fix the fact that I was struggling in pain. So don't try to fix the unfixable. Try to make my life just a little bit easier. Right? Like that little device did. So the whole time I was like looking at that empty chair. And you know what I found? I found purpose. I found reason. I found mission. Because I said, when I get better when I survive the unsurvivable, which they said I would never live without cancer. I would never walk again. I would never see again. I would never eat solid food again. I said, when I get better, I'm going to do something so it's not so hard for the next person. Right? And, and that's like my big aspiration. I don't try to fix anything. I don't make any promises. I'm like, I'm going to help make it suck less. <laughs> so I was able to break free of the nursing home jail. And I got into like a transitional housing thing for a couple of years. I had when I, when they had taken the tumors out, it had metastasized into my lymph nodes. And any of one who's physicians here knows your lymph nodes are under your arms. They're also at the base of your skull, which is why like it went into the brain. And, but the, so there was one like here under my left arm that was pretty significant that this like amazing surgeon said that he would take out, but he said, I'll probably lose my arm. He said, you're not left-handed, are you? Like, like, yes. He's like, of course you are. He's like, well, I don't know. I don't know if I can sign the arm, save the arm. So I wake up from surgery. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's there. But there was no vascular going to it, Right. So my vascular system was just shot from, from everything. So they did my own transplant where they took a vascular from my stomach and they put it up here in order to save my arm, which they did everybody. Yeah. And, and that kind of like healed, like did okay. Obviously I kept my arm, but my stomach did not close. So what did that mean? That meant that my entire stomach was open. It's called undermining for anybody who's not a physician here. You could take your arm into my stomach and wave your hand around from all the open for six months, up to your elbow. And I'm home, right? And home care is not covered, right? So they said, so who's going to change your IVs and do your wounds, right? I would go in for what's called a debridement once a week, but who's going to do it in between? You don't have anybody, so we're going to send you back to the nursing home. I'm like, no, 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 you cannot send me back there. I had a 10-year-old, and she said, I'll do it, Mommy. And that was acceptable. So my 10-year-old changed my IVs and cleaned my bandages. She now, FYI, 
wants to be a oncology surgeon. 10 years old, so she was changing that. And I'm walking around with like an IV and like finally I got like better for a wound back. And I had two years of recovery like that. As I got better and I left Minnesota, so sad to leave Minnesota after I had such a fun time there. I came back to New York and I came back into healthcare. And people were like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, why are you coming back into healthcare? I said, I, I have mission. You know, I have purpose. I have a reason. I'm going to make it not be so bad. Because I had done a lot with social determinants before there was a hashtag with design and that sort of thing, and I started to like really get the value in value-based care. I said, wow, if we switch the financials, we can pay to do the right thing. And so I started working with a lot of companies like you all, monitoring companies and that sort of thing, and how to get it paid under value-based care and running some big contracts. For those who know, there's a thing called ACO Reach, which used to be GPTC, which used to be DCE, which is a total capitation. It's actually not total, but that's what they call it, which is like Medicare Advantage, where you get total cost of care. You get a percentage of that. And then you make relationships with providers called participating providers. And then what we kind of call the pay provider, which could be an ACO, it could be a group of doctors, receives money from CMS, and then takes that money and pays it to the participating providers in whatever kind of contract they want to do, and then takes it away from fee-for-service. So I'm going to back up a step in like what, because you've all probably been hearing about like value-based care, and you're like, oh my gosh, I really need to know about this. It's like coming down the pike. Like, what is it exactly? So for those of you who have heard me before, I apologize. I, this is a Gail Zotzism that I use pretty frequently between the difference between fee-for-service and value-based care. So fee-for-service is what I call a payment for sickness. So you're walking down the street on a sidewalk, and it's broken, and you trip, and you fall, and you break your arm. On fee-for-service, you go into the hospital, and there's a bill for each of the following. A doctor to set it, somebody to scan it, physical therapy to set it up, the device in order to like brace it. And then there's a fee for each time that you go to the physical therapist to get it better and that sort of thing. It is a fee for sickness. In value-based care, the payment is to keep you well because you get the same money whether somebody's going in and getting the scans or not. So the incentive is to fix the sidewalk. And then health equity, which I'm sure you all have been hearing about a lot, says, there should be a safe sidewalk in every single neighborhood, regardless of zip code or race or socioeconomic. So we're moving from fee-for-service to value-based care. And I know a lot of you are probably like, eyes are like rolling up. They're like, yeah, we've heard that. It's not happening. But it actually is. CMS is moving all Medicare beneficiaries to a value-based contract by 2030. Why does this matter if you're like basically in the commercial space or you're in the Medicaid space? So Medicaid is rolling out this year. It was here in 2020, something called DISRIP. It was paused during this whole political argument. It's been brought back with lead from CMS that all of Medicaid is moving to accountable relationships. Now, why this matters to everybody else is that where CMS goes 
the rest of healthcare payments follow. So even if you're not concerned with Medicare, what's happening with CMS and Medicare becomes highly relevant to what you're doing because whatever else you're doing is gonna follow. And if you wanna know like how much is like, is this really gonna happen? I want you to think about the time of EHRs. I think most of us are old enough to remember when EHRs became mandated, right? So the, the couple of years before EHRs became mandated, people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I remember I was at a Christmas party and the surgeon said, I don't know what they're talking about, like moving to technology. We have a computer, right? And it was like, we have a computer in the office, so therefore we're like going as far as we need to go. And most people dealt with it that way. They're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, it's going to happen. We don't have to worry about it. And then CMS said, we're going to start charging you. We're going to ping you for violations for not having an EHR. And there was one year warning on that. And this little company called Epic took seven salespeople and had a solution and just blanketed the country and said, all right, here's what it's gonna cost if we'll accept you, but here's what your fines are gonna be. So then all of a sudden, all of these people, boom, and we're like, oh my gosh, it was like instantaneous success, right? Because people are like, oh, it's not really gonna happen. That is where we're at with value-based care. So this is why you need to pay attention to this because we're in those couple years right before it gets really painful. But CMS has said, you have gotten too comfortable in fee-for-service. And so we're gonna make it super uncomfortable, right? And it's gonna get really uncomfortable and then everybody's gonna have to move to value-based contracting because it's gonna be mandated. Like absolutely it's gonna be mandated. And a lot of people are already doing it. So now, how do you jive the fact that the business side is thinking about attribution and revenue cycle, and what are we gonna do? How are we gonna bill CMS 50% of the time for fee-for-service and 50% of the time for value-based contracting? And how do we mesh it with quality measures? I'm sure you guys have all heard about quality measures, right? But does anybody like actually know what they are? So they're like, the idea is that with value-based contracting, you are accountable for the outcomes for how good the care is. It's based on what's called the triple aim, which you probably have all heard about on social media, but you may not understand it. CMS, when they started with CMMI, they said, we wanna do three things. We wanna reduce the total cost of care, we want to improve the patient experience, and we want to improve outcomes of total populations. So how do we get there? So the ACA was passing, and most of you think about it like as like Medicaid being expanded. Really? Wow, that went fast. <laughs> I only have five minutes, guys. And they, in the last minute, they said, how are we gonna do these three things? So they said, all right, we're gonna create this like incubator, right? And you guys all kind of know incubators, and we're gonna try, we're gonna test, we're gonna try different models. It's called CMMI, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation. It is the great incubator of value-based contracting. It was funded through CMS. I'll give you a drop the lead on it. There was 40 contracts that have been rolled out. Since then, in a little over a decade, 38 completely failed. So 
There's gonna be a bit of work that's happening. I don't have time to explain all this, but I am here all day, so I'm happy to talk to all of you. I wanna talk to you just a second because I'm, I get this all the time. How did you survive this, right? And you look like kind of happy. It's weird. So I'll, get, so I'll give you my little formula, right? For how to survive almost anything. Show up. That doesn't sound really complicated. And 99% of the time it is, right? Showing up, just showing up to the next thing that you have to do and showing up whom you show up as, that's 99% of the jig. So I'll just, once you show up, do the next right thing. You don't know what to do in six months or a year. You have your five-year plan or if you're as old as me, your retirement plan. But the very next thing, do I say thank you? Do I finish this thing I don't want to finish? Do I act gracious? Do I act kind? The very next right thing to do, you almost always know how to do it. Find joy. Don't wait for it to come to you. Find it every single day. It is there. I guarantee it. I find it. Dance often. Just do. Just try it. You know, in your kitchen, in your basement with nobody. You're going to see. It definitely, and love fiercely, fiercely, fiercely. That is how I have found joy in my life, despite the kind of things that people would say could make me angry, you know? And they're like, aren't you angry at that doctor? Aren't you angry at that insurance company? I said, what good would that do me? That is not useful. That anger is toxic for me. We do not have to be all of our trauma. We choose our story. And every patient and every one of us, when we're in the realm of being a patient or being a caregiver or whatever title you want to give us that day, gets to choose. So we get to choose every day. Do I want to live in anger? Do I want to live in joy? Use your technologies to support that level of choice because you can, and it really matters. Thank you so, so much for having me. I'm here all day. Thank you for joining us for this week's Health Impacts Digital Health Talk. Don't miss another podcast. Subscribe at digitalhealthtalks.com. And to join us at our next face-to-face event, visit healthimpactlive.com.